Well, brethren, sisters and young people, um, I, I for one am very happy that we're doing Song of Solomon, not because I'm doing it, but because I suppose we're allowed to have a favourite book in the scriptures. Song of Solomon would be my favourite book. I love to talk about it and to talk to brethren and sisters about that book. But it's also a book which I feel has been very badly maligned over the years, both in and out of the ecclesia. It's not a book that we spend a lot of time on, it doesn't seem, and because of that there's quite a few misconceptions about the book. And yet it is a book which fulfills every need spiritually in our life. I think some look at the book and because we don't deal with it very much and we just perhaps do it in our readings, we look at it and feel that it's on perhaps we might suggest that it's on a spiritual level which a uh, spiritual plane which really hasn't got any practical value to us well I can assure you that while it is a very spiritual book it's a very practical one as well and we're going to find in fact that it has a lot of lessons for us in our daily life it certainly has a, a lot of lessons for us in our ecclesial life and how to deal with each other and there are in fact some issues that are very very clearly outlined in the Song of Solomon in perhaps a better way and a more practical uh, way than anywhere else in scripture so it's a very practical book as well as it is a very highly spiritual book because uh, perhaps there has not been the work done on it and because of the terminology of the book um, there as I said has been all sorts of misconceptions and uh, it's an unfortunate thing but I, I, in our experience of talking about the book we've found even within the truth that there are some brethren and sisters who feel uncomfortable with the book um, and uh, in fact I've had brethren particularly for some reason who have admitted to me that Song of Solomon is a book that they don't include in their daily readings for instance that if they're reading with the family they miss that one out um, and that of course worries me and, and disturbs me a little uh, but with that in mind and, and talking to brethren and sisters about the book we found from experience that the best way to go about it to do any study on it is to spend a bit of time first and dispel any doubts that we might have about the book doubts that we may have about the terminology whether it's uh, whether we think the terminology itself is very appropriate for the sons of God uh, and the theme of the book and so forth and we found that if you spend a bit of time going through that first it allays anybody's fears and starts to make the book live and that's what we want to do tonight we're not actually going to get down to any of the songs as such I think we've got enough time till the end of the year to deal with each of the songs individually there are 12 songs in the book but tonight we want to spend our time just getting a feel for the book and to cover any of these feelings you might have about the book but certainly to each one of us to, to get a real feel for this book it's an exciting, a lovely book and uh, I'm sure that all of us including our young ones are going to find it very very interesting and going to gain a lot from it what I've got listed down here as a, a list of of uh, subjects that we're going to deal with tonight and you can write them down if you're taking notes and, and then you know what order we're going to take I want to deal firstly with its appropriateness that's the question that we're raising earlier some suggest it's not a very appropriate book in fact it's an interesting thing that in the Catholic Church it's not looked on as an appropriate book and in any major um, uh, church council that has taken place in the last couple of hundred years there have been two books that are always on the church agenda to look at and they are the book of Song of Solomon and the book of Revelation and there has always been the question in the Catholic Church to ban those two books out of the canon of scripture the book of Revelation it's obvious because 
uh, of its reference to the church itself. I mean, no longer can they deny uh, the reference to the church within that book. Um, and so it's an embarrassment to them. But the Song of Solomon, because they feel that the terminology is inappropriate, so they don't understand the book, and that's, that's obvious. It is a book which has as its grand theme, of course, love, and therefore in the New Testament, I suppose, it parallels with the book of John. And the writings of John, of course, are that spiritual book in the New Testament that the church can't understand either. So it's no, no wonder they can't understand the, uh, the Song of Solomon. So that inappropriateness that's seen there, we want to dispel first. So we want to show that it's appropriate. We're then going to have a look at its, uh, its relevance to today. And in that sense, we just want to look at some of the lessons for today that it would give to us. It would teach us of separation, of fidelity to Christ, um, helpful one toward another, taking up the theme of last Sunday's exhortation, and how needful it is that we have companionship together as the ecclesia of God. Those are just four titles that I've taken under this heading of uh, relevance. The theme of the book then we want to have a look at as our third point, the theme of the book. We're then going to, on the fourth point, have a look at it to show that it is a chronological book. Chronological in several ways. It, um, uh, it in a sense, is, I suppose we could use the word chronological and it deals with the, the courtship and marriage of a young couple and goes from the point that they first meet to the time that they are married. But chronologically, historically, and this is the important thing and that's what we're going to find in chapter 5, and it's probably chapter 5, any of you that have had a look at chapter 5 and perhaps uh, have heard um, in my case I used, I've done an exhortation just recently at Tetra Gully and I was surprised at just how what sort of response I had from the Ecclesia because a lot sort of said well suddenly the book comes alive it's in that 6th um, song, 7th song um, in chapter 5 and chapter 6 that it all sort of comes together and we can pick up this chronological order of the book it deals with Israel's history it deals with the coming of Christ his first advent and then the calling of the Gentiles and it chronologically follows very beautifully so we'll have a look at that as our first, fourth point our fifth point we'll have a look at the author himself and it's interesting that in that connection that some brethren uh, have a real obstacle with that and they have endeavoured to find try and answer that Solomon is not in fact the, the, uh, the author of the book uh, and there is a suggestion within the church writers that Hezekiah is the writer and uh, that the insertion of the words at the beginning of the, the book the verse 1 has been inserted at some stage later and perhaps uh, Hezekiah in his modesty has said I didn't write it Solomon did uh, and some of our Christophian writers have taken that up to a certain extent uh, we, I've got a few works here that we'll recommend but there would be for instance books I wouldn't recommend on the Song of Solomon that one there by um, Stanley Owen uh, put out by the Christadelphian um, if you've got it at home I suggest rather than read it you can you put it in the fire um, it, it's a shocking book actually and, and puts the wrong connotation on the whole book altogether um, he in fact in talking of the author of the book would make this point he says that brother that that um, Solomon is totally inappropriate as the author of the book because um, he was a man who had uh, an insatiable appetite for sex. That's the type of terminology that book uses. Um, and yet, of course, he's missed the whole point. And um, it's not a very good book at all. Um, uh, brother Whitaker's notes, which I suppose most of us have had anything to do with Brother Whitaker, uh, he can either he's put like the little girl that either he's very very good or he's rotten. And and on Summer Solomon, he fits into the latter category. Um, 
he does pick up the Jewish idea of the book and the Jews have traditionally looked at the book as a story and this is what Brother Whitaker picks up and so does this fellow here to some extent that it's a story of a young girl who is being um, um, it's a word, seduced by Solomon to come into his harem and that she's already engaged to be married and that's the beloved of the book who is a shepherd and Solomon takes her away from that beloved and lures her to come into the um, into his harem. That's the the Jewish traditional Jewish uh, idea of the book as they see it, uh, which of course has no spiritual application then whatsoever. And some have picked that up, like Brother Whitaker and this this brother here, and um, they've taken that and perhaps adapted a little bit. But that basically is what they say, and it leaves you wondering what it's all about because there's no spiritual lesson in that whatsoever. Uh, in regard to that, which is commendable, of course. Uh, Primarily, Brother Ask's book, ASK, Brother Ask on the Song of Solomon, to which Brother, uh, Brother Mansfield in his Romance for Eternity on the opening pages um, makes a comment. Brother Ask, of course, had died before he wrote that book, but he comments on uh, the fact that he used Brother Ask's book as a base, and it is a very, very beautiful book. Um, and Brother Purse then takes it up in Romance for Eternity and enlarges that. But if you look around, you can find other notes that are quite good that's a set there's a brother in USA brother Charles Hall who's put out quite a bit of printed matter too on different books of the Bible and that's a very good one not anywhere as detailed as Brother Purse's or Brother Ask's but tends to he calls it the divine allegory and deals more with the spiritual aspect and doesn't try to make it literal at all but a very good set of notes so there's a couple of helps um, if you want to do something at home uh, and try and get hold of anything um, other things that can be a help I've found in this subject particularly that you need to understand Jewish custom you need to understand particularly in relationship to marriage what the Jewish customs were and they come out so strongly in the book um, and therefore you need to go to quite a bit of Jewish matter to pick that up and the Sincinio uh, are quite helpful in that um, the Song of Solomon is known to them as the first of the five Megaloth books uh, the word Megaloth meaning uh, scrolls the first of the five scrolls and uh, that has a, it has the the, Jew, the Hebrew on one side with a liter, uh, translation by the rabbis, and their comments on the bottom. So while it's not always, uh, not always good, we might say, but you can pick up nevertheless from that some gems as the Jews talk about their understanding, particularly of the the Jewish customs. And we'll have a bit about to say say about that in a moment. Right, that's getting a bit away from the list that I was telling you. I was talking about uh, the author Solomon. Um, then point number six, we're going to have a look at its double application. That is, that it is dealing with both the bride in her Jewish and her Gentile aspect, and we'll see that that comes out very strongly in the book. In fact, the last time that I looked at the book, and we have a I just have a practice of my own that each time I'm asked to look at the, to do the book as a study, I, I go through the whole thing again, as though I haven't looked at it before. And this time, the last time I did it, I did particularly look at it from this Jewish Gentile aspect, and that was probably the most exciting study I'd done on Song of Solomon, because I found that it came out very, very solidly. And until then, I must admit, having done it a few times in Ecclesiastes for efforts, but I used to refer to its Jewish Gentile aspect and hope that nobody came up afterwards and said prove it because well, it sounded so right and Brother Ars mentions it and Brother Percy Mansfield takes it up I'd never actually looked at it but having looked at it it's, it's absolutely uh, clear it's, uh, it's undeniable that it has a Jewish Gentile aspect and it splits the book into two distinct areas the seventh point I've got is that 
uh, it's to be linked with a couple of other Solomon's writings I've just got Solomon's favourite subject and really marriage was marriage and family life was, was Solomon's favourite subject as you look through the Psalms that he wrote the only two Psalms we do know or one Psalm we know he wrote was Psalm 127 and we suggest he also wrote Psalm 128 with that that's the family Psalm um, and Psalm 45 of course which is relating to the same thing to, to marriage um, and um, then of course you have the Proverbs which are full of family life Ecclesiastes, all of Solomon's writings it's his favourite subject is, is um, uh, uh, man, woman, relationship and families and we're going to see that that helps us understand this book too and then finally just the last comment on the eighth point is that if we've got time just mention the difference between Song of Solomon and Hosea Hosea the prophet wrote to the very same theme uh, the man and his bride yet in fact there's no connection between the two in reality uh, so we're going to see why that is and what the difference is between those two books so there we've got the eight points that we want to try and cover tonight if we can now as far as the appropriateness is concerned I, I think there's a couple of quotations that are well worth marking down that before we looked at the book we need to take into account it's a spiritual principle the first of those is in Psalm 119 and at verse 140 the children will know of course that Psalm 119 is the longest book in the Bible and in verse 140 there is a divine principle here that we have to come to grips with to start with before when we're looking at this book particularly it's put very very distinctly very clearly it's not just here it's in other places it's in the Psalms quite often <laughs> thy word is very pure therefore thy servant loveth it now we emphasise the point that God's words are pure so if we have a problem with a book say it be Song of Solomon or any other book of the Bible if we have a problem with the terminology the problem's ours not God's because all of God's words are very pure now with that as a caption over the Song of Solomon then even at this stage if you've read the book and felt well there's some terms there that don't seem to be appropriate then we've got to immediately admit that it's, not, it's our problem not God's because all of his words are pure now the other quote is in the New Testament in Titus 1 verse 15 and this has a very large bearing again on looking at the book um, Titus 1 verse 15 again words that we would probably know fairly well when we quote them but it's a principle on which we'd look at this book and, and makes the understanding so much, uh, so much clearer to us in Titus chapter 1 and verse 15 <coughs> unto the pure all things are pure but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure but even their mind and conscience is defiled now that unfortunately becomes very apparent in the world today because people have not got a pure mind from the word of God then everything is impure and it's amazing you know I mean today would be a classic example and it's today I think uh, that we had in the paper this comment by this chap in the Adelaide Council about unmarried mothers that after having three children that there should be some way to stop them now that the, the furor that that has caused is unbelievable I mean a few years ago we would have accepted that as a statement there'd be no problem with that now here's a woman on the front page today of the advertiser who's had three children by three different fathers and says she wants to keep on having children by different men uh, uh, and keep on getting the, the money from the government and 
I was listening to some radio uh, comments today while we're driving along and people are actually ringing in and saying they agree with that woman not with the chap who said that it should be stopped the whole moral of, of society is turned around and one can only expect that because they haven't got the purity of the word in their minds now that's the world but in the truth brethren and sisters we, we young people we can have that same problem if we don't get our mind pure we're going to read for instance motives into other people into brethren and sisters you know, a brother who's got a mind pure on the word would not read an impure motive into his brother or sister even if he perhaps saw them doing something wrong the classical I suppose and it's happened so many times in ecclesial life that, that uh, people relate these stories how that for some reason they've had to go to a place it might be a person who's gone in to get wine for the memorial meeting but had to go to a hotel to get it and be met coming out of the door now what's the reaction of the brother that sees them come out now if his mind is pure he immediately looks for a right motive and he'd say well there's any one of a half a dozen reasons they could have gone in there but if your mind's not pure you'll immediately think ah there's a problem here this brother's been drinking and that's the difference between a pure mind and an impure mind and we should be developing through the word to think pure thoughts and therefore giving in each case like that our brethren the benefit of the doubt now we may be wrong but we've given them that benefit of the doubt now when you come to the Song of Solomon where that becomes clear is therefore when there's terminology there that we don't understand then we've got to look at it that God has put it there it's pure and we've got the problem we've got to find out what it is that also goes in regard to that sort of writing now the main problem in that is that for instance he makes the comment he says that Solomon is totally inappropriate to be the beloved of the book because he had a thousand wives and concubines and he said that proves to him that Solomon was, was, had this insatiable appetite um, now that to me is an impure statement if one is looking at it purely there are many reasons why Solomon had a thousand wives it was not as such condoned by God but this facts we do know he in, in, the, in all those thousand wives and concubines had one son now he was a king who wanted a, a son on his throne and I believe that much of that which much of the accumulation of wives was in order for that he says that in Psalm 127 that except Yahweh build the house they labour in vain that build it and here he is taking on wife after wife after wife and all he can get is daughters so there's one <coughs> looking at it purely and through pure eyes there's one reason that Solomon would have had and of course the other we do know from scripture is that those wives such as the daughter of Solomon were given to him as gifts by kings now there's no indication in that that Solomon had a bend in a direction it was simply that they were given to him by embassies when they came up from countries and they as was the custom gave them their daughter to bring about an alliance and has no, no inference towards the type of thinking that was in Solomon's mind but a brother can write and say that he's got an impure mind because he's got a thousand wives so you can look at things from two angles either purely or impurely and so the book in itself has a practical exhortation for us in that respect that we are to get our mind and our thinking right and we will understand then that all the words of God are pure now when it comes therefore to this book and, and the terminology which some find inappropriate there are in fact three things that affect our, our reading of this book the first is Jewish terminology we have to understand how the, how the Jews would use a phrase as distinct from how we would use it and that answers a lot of the problems in the book <coughs> the second point I've got is that Jewish custom has a bearing on it there are customs in the Jews which we wouldn't understand and we might even find offensive 
but they are nevertheless a Jewish custom. Not using the Jews as an example, but take an Arab, for instance, who an Arab, by custom, after he's had a meal, would go outside and poke his fingers down his throat and be sick on the ground, and the people who gave him the meal would, would thank him for that because it was a sign of gratitude for the meal that he had. Now, we'd think that was absolutely wrong, but that was a custom and while we'd be offended at it, the Arab would be offended because we sat there and didn't do that. So we've got to understand customs before we actually make any criticism along those lines. And the other thing is uh, also the bad translation. Uh, like all the books of scripture in its translation from the Hebrew or the Greek, there are sometimes bad translations. And uh, some of those um, we can pick up very, very quickly where, where words are used inappropriately and had they used the right word it would have made a whole lot of difference to the meaning of the book okay let's take those individually the Jew Jewish terminology well of course the, the term virgin occurs time and time again in the book and we wouldn't tend to use that word today but in the Jewish sense of it they define the woman either as a virgin or a married woman and there is that's the distinction that they would make we would use the word unmarried, I suppose. Um, we wouldn't talk of her, her um, um, what's the word um, that I'm looking for? Uh, we wouldn't talk of the fact that she was discreet or anything like that. We would just simply say she's either married or unmarried. But a Jew would determine, as by using that phrase, that here he was a girl who was waiting to be married. And so the word virgin, while we, in a sense, would find that inoffensive, has no offence in it whatsoever. It's talking about a girl who is waiting to be married and therefore she will bring forth children when she's married. And it's that Jewish terminology that they would use. Now, in chapter 1 of uh, Song of Solomon, there in verse 13, for instance, we've got another phrase which uh, offends some. And again, it depends how you're looking at it. A bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me. He shall lie all night betwixt my breasts. Now it's amazing what people have come up with as that picture that's presented there of a young girl who says that, that he will spend all night betwixt my breasts. Now the first thing is that if we understood what the phrase between my breasts mean it would immediately alleviate some of the problem because that phrase in the Hebrew simply means he's in my heart. He's in my heart. And they actually that's why of course we we don't understand it always but I mean most of the women here are wearing a, a pendant a necklace and it has something which sits there between the breasts why would we do that well because it comes from the custom that that represents the heart and generally speaking a necklace is given by a husband to a wife from a boy to a girl it's, it was certainly always given in these days uh, given as a sign of love and therefore it stayed there because it was close to the heart. Now in this case, she has a bundle of myrrh which lies between her breasts. The word he there should be it. Now there's a problem with mistranslation. It's not a he at all, it's an it. It's talking about the bundle of myrrh. The bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me. It shall lie all night betwixt my breasts. Now here's a third point that was customary. It was a custom for a young Jewish boy to give his young Jewish girl a bag of myrrh which she would wear around her neck. And when the, the, the body heat made that aroma come up, who did she remember? Her beloved. And it was a reminder to her of his love for her. So it was customary for him to give it to her. And uh, he would remember her by that. So in one verse, 
which would be misunderstood I think you'd all agree if you just read that through have been totally misunderstood but it has in it a, a, um, a custom of the Jews in that they gave this uh, bundle of myrrh from, as a sign of love there is a mistranslation in that it should be it instead of he and betwixt my breast is simply a reference to the, to the heart to the, to the thought of that person so it's talking about a bride who is thinking about her husband in chapter 7 and verse 2 there's another interesting phrase and this would highlight again the need for us to stick to Jewish terminology um, chapter 7 and verse 2 in the ninth song we read this and this is the, the bridesmaids talking at this stage if once you've got your, your um, book colour coded you'd know that but it's the brides, bridesmaids and it's part of a custom where the bridesmaids always dress the bride they did several things customarily they took the young girl and they stripped her they put her in a bath and anointed her with oil the bridesmaids did that and then dressed her again and that is alluded to many times in scripture in fact it's a clue in book of Ruth as to why Naomi says to Ruth go wash and anoint yourself and present yourself to Boaz Ruth knew that that was, that was paramount to saying you're going to be married to him because that was the custom of a young girl before she got married was to be bathed and anointed now all this comes out of here and the bridesmaids are actually dressing this girl and they, or, and they see her therefore in all her nudity now that would be offensive I suppose if we're looking at a mass male looking at this but it's virgins, the bridesmaids looking at this girl and they say to her in verse 2 thy navel is like a round goblet which wanteth not liquor thy belly is like a heap of wheat set about with lilies now we wouldn't think that was very endearing sort of terms to use about someone to talk about their navel and some of them I think even Brother HP have tended to say well look it's really referring to the waist and therefore it's the shape of the waist that's referred to but it's not at all the word navel here is the word umbilical cord the cord of course that connects the baby to the mother when they're born and that's why of course we have a navel when the umbilical cord is cut away there we have the navel but the word here is umbilical cord so what she's talking about here what the bridesmaids are talking about is here is one who even in the womb when she was being formed was being formed spiritually now there's a spiritual principle there comes up in the New Testament that, that we, are, we are told in the New Testament that we must be born of the spirit and that word really means begotten of the spirit we're being formed in the womb now we're not really born we get born when we get immortality but we're being formed in the womb and when the baby is in the womb where it drinks in from is from the navel now therefore we miss that whole point if we said oh that's only the waste we miss the whole spiritual point here is a reference to this the, the spiritual background of this girl so it's important to before we change words is to look at why they are used and what they are talking about as we said navel in that case is very very important in chapter 8 and verse 8 again now here's another one that is a little bit embarrassing when we first read it but there's no need for embarrassment the bride is speaking and she's talking to her husband I just got married I just got married and they're going to set out a married life and, and she turns to him and she says we have a little sister and she hath no breasts what shall we do for our sister in the day that she's spoken for now again we would find it inappropriate to refer to that part of the woman's anatomy as such but the Jew doesn't find embarrassing at all because the breast speaks of nourishment now in, again in some of our translations and some of our notes the brethren feeling for that word change it to chest now a Jew would find that highly offensive 
absolutely offensive that you would refer to a woman's chest because a man has a chest that speaks of strength a woman has a breast it speaks of nourishment and it would be totally inappropriate to use the different word and again if we were a Jew we'd miss the spiritual principle that here it's talking of nourishment now to talk of a girl who had no breast is simply to say that here is an immature girl you know what if you went to a Jew and spoke of a child being in their puberty a Jew would go bright red and be embarrassed because that to them is an offensive term but we use that we talk of a child who's in their puberty they haven't grown up they haven't come to a mature age we don't find that offensive a Jew would whereas we some would probably find the term little breast as, as, in a, as offensive where a Jew wouldn't so it's terminology and in the terms of Song of Solomon it's important that we don't change those things as I said because we'd miss the spiritual import of why they're there so you see the terms there are not embarrassing when you look at them in the context of why they're given and the way in which the Jew would have used those terms now the other thing that's as we said is mentioned in the Song of Solomon and we need to come to grips with is is this idea of custom now we've already covered one and that is of course the bundle of myrrh now we'd miss that point if we didn't realise that that was in fact literally a way in which the um, uh, the, bride, the groom would show his love for his bride he'd give her a little bag of camphor or of, of um, spices that she'd wear around her neck so that was a custom there and was a sign of love again we'd miss that point if we didn't understand that it was Jewish custom in chapter 4 and verse 9 there's an interesting phrase that is used again based on custom but unless we knew the custom we wouldn't appreciate the strength of it in chapter 4 verse 9 the groom is talking and she says about the bride it's he says rather about the bride in verse 9 thou hast ravished my heart my sister spouse my is in italics you'll notice so he calls her his sister spouse thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes with one chain of thy neck now again mistranslation because the word chain there means to turn it's of course used of, of a chain because it, as a chain has parts which are turned one within the other but we here literally translate it so it says with one turn of your neck you and with one eye you would ravish my heart now it would be hard to try and work that all out unless we appreciate a custom and the custom is very simply this that in the Jewish order of things there is not to be any physical contact between a boy and a girl during the time of espousal they could not have physical contact like today a boy would put his arm around his girl or hang onto her hands or even perhaps kiss the girl that could not be done in the time of espousal or engagement with a Jewish couple now you can therefore appreciate when a young couple are passing in the street what effect the eye would have because there's no other way they could express their feeling they couldn't run over and put their arm around and kiss them it would just be a look of the eyes was enough for this man to say but basically the groom is saying "Look, don't look at me like that I can't haste the wedding day it can't come any quicker than what we've planned so turn your eyes away from me but you see we wouldn't see that in the eyes today because as I said it would be done more physically than through the eye but when you understand that custom it has a very very powerful point and of course what is it in spiritual terms very beautifully but us and Christ we have no physical contact with Christ but you can guess how Christ feels when we as it were look at him in prayer and we say even so come Lord Jesus we want you to come we want you to set up your kingdom and there's Christ basically in heaven saying look I know I know how you feel but I can't come until the set time 
and although it's it's a what's the word it's it's a type of statement that is made but is not meant the opposite is meant just as in this case the groom would say don't look at me he meant look at me because he was saying that he'd love to see that look in her eyes but it cut his heart and the same with Christ you could almost imagine Christ saying don't pray for my speedy coming because I can only come when the time is but he wants us to pray on the other hand and that's the type of terminology that is used there but as I said we wouldn't appreciate that unless we saw the custom now in 5 verse 5 there's another custom again we've missed the point perhaps if we it wouldn't mean very much to us unless we knew that it was a custom but the bride in this chapter rises up to open to her beloved but he's gone he'd knocked on the door he tried to get inside the door but she was asleep and he says uh, the bride is talking about her response to his knocking and she says I rose up to open the door my hands dropped with myrrh my fingers with sweet smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock but I opened to him but he'd gone so all that was left of him was this smell of myrrh on the doorpost now you see there's a custom involved here and it was literally the custom of a Jewish boy because there was no physical contact there were customary things he would do and one of them he could do was go to her house and anoint the doorpost with myrrh and when she came out and touched the door and she smelt it she knew straight away he'd been there he'd been there that was his calling card as it were and it was a custom and so there's a beautiful custom involved and in fact literally brethren and sisters and young people that's the bread and wine on Sunday morning when we, t- when we go to the bread and wine in the morning it's the myrrh on the doorpost Christ is gone but he's left that long lasting fragrance that we can remember him by in fact myrrh is very appropriate because myrrh is the symbol in scripture of suffering so there, is, there are some customs that I said maybe are not vitally important to understanding the book but boy they make a difference to what we understand of that book and they put a whole new dimension on it as we understand it now the, others, the other third point was bad translation now we had that one back in chapter 1 and verse 13 that the bag of myrrh is really a it not a he I want you to look in verse 16 of chapter 1 as well because we're introduced there for the first time to a bed so we read there that it says that um, behold thou art fair my beloved yea pleasant also our bed is green now we're going to read through the Song of Solomon time and time again about this bed there are three words for bed in the book of Solomon Song of Solomon now the difference is this that those who have got an impure mind whenever they read the word bed think of a young couple laying together alright I mean if you talk of as he says my beloved and, and I are upon the bed uh, you've got a picture presented but if that bird bed word bed simply means a couch it means a chair that you'd sit in to have a meal it makes a big difference to your understanding um, but the translators haven't made that difference so they simply translate the word for chair the word for palaquin that that you're carried about on and that which is a bed that you sleep on they translate all those three words as bed so as you go through you've got to look at the word and find out whether in fact it's got anything to do with a bedroom or whether it might even be the kitchen that's referred to and then sometimes it's even outside where they're being borne along on a couch so there'd certainly no, be no idea no, no sense of anything untoward happening on a couch that's being borne along by people so the word makes a difference and the translators could have helped us by just simply changing that for us and the other translation and it's one that 
one, the other one that I picked out just as an illustration and by the way this is not exhaustive I haven't given you all of these but we'll pick them up as we go through the, the chapters yeah yes Um, yeah, it's couch. Yeah, it's a couch. It's the. Uh, uh, it simply means to arch, actually, and refers more to the way that they sat rather than the chair itself. But yeah, it's a couch. It would be a a meal table. It would be. It's talking about the bride is reminiscing on or looking forward to a to a uh, to married life, and that we'll be able to sit down to meals together. That's really all she's saying, and that our house will be a happy house. Uh, no reference to the bedroom at all. So um, uh, in that case, it's the word for uh, for couch. I'll g- I haven't got it listed here, but I will when we come to that and go through the ver- words. I'll give you the actual Hebrew word. Well, green is is the colour, of course, of eternity. Um, so we will be married forever. Is in simple English is what it's saying. Green was the colour, if you remember, of the rainbow around the throne in Revelation. The rainbow in Revelation is is emerald green. It's the colour of life, and in this sense, is eternal. And it really is, uh, I suppose, in a in a good old English phrase, we're going to live happily ever after, is what it's really saying. Only in this case, it's true. Um, that's a beautiful thing. I mean, that's a phrase that comes out of all of those um, what do you call them fairy tales we learned about. You know, and they lived happily ever after. Um, that we, of course, are involved in a situation with Christ where that is literally true. <coughs> That when we get married him to him, we'll live happily ever after with him, and uh, that's what she's actually um, uh, she's talking about there. That um, she's looking forward to that lasting. Um, the last of these phrases was in chapter five and verse four, um, where again translation could really have helped us. Although the the Hebrew word is probably accurately translated. Um, to help us understand translators could have probably changed it my beloved put his hand on the hole of the door and my bowels will move for him now if we use that in English and said our bowels will move by what somebody did we'd have a different connotation altogether to what is meant here the word bowels is just the word for soft the soft part of the body and it means softness in the sense of sympathy it's translated heart um, in many places in the Old Testament actually the NIV says there my heart began to pound so my heart began to pound you get the idea that um, uh, as, as she realised who was at the door her heart started to beat and um, so that's what it's talking about but as I said the translators could have helped us no end by perhaps just giving us what our understanding of that word is um, because that's the part that we would refer to as the heart the affections alright so there's some ideas of, there's some, uh, some covering these points of um, of the Jewish terminology, Jewish custom and bad translation which in themselves you can see straight away start to open that book up as perhaps totally different to what we'd looked at it before now as far as the book being discreet or indiscreet it's an extremely discreet book you know again I suppose our reading of it first and if we don't look at it we think well there's some areas in here that don't you know just seem to really chapter 7 remember I told you it was the bridesmaids in the custom the bridesmaids dressed the bride now here they talk about um, about the bride let's read through the words we'll read through them from verse 1 this actually is the ninth song which goes from verse 1 to verse 9 of chapter 7 and the bride is preparing She's the, husband, the groom is on her way and the bridesmaids are preparing her how beautiful are thy feet with shoes O prince's daughter 
The joints of thy thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a cunning workman. Thy navel is like a round goblet which wanteth not liquor. Thy belly is like a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins. Thy neck is as a tower of ivory. Thine eyes like the fish pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bathrimon. Thy nose is as a tower of Lebanon which looketh towards Damascus. And thine head upon thee is like Carmel, and the hair of thine head is like, is like purple. The king is held in thy galleries. So the bridesmaids are talking about the beauty of this bride. There she is standing, uh, standing naked in front of them, and they talk about her. And it, notice, as they talk of all the parts, they mention, for instance, in verse 3, her two breasts. Now, they would obviously see that, because she's naked. But you know, when the groom speaks, in chapter 4, um, and uh, in... Um, in the first few verses of chapter 4 the groom speaks and his terms are almost almost the same in fact the terms are the same and he says this in verse 5 he talks about the breasts too but he's talking about a, a bride he's going to marry he hasn't married her he says thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins exactly what the bridesmaid said but look what he then adds which feed among the lilies you notice the point he's made that while he sees her breasts as such, they're hidden in a garden of lilies. You see the discreetness of it? It would be inappropriate for him to express this girl, girl as being completely nude, undressed in front of him. She sees, he sees the same beauty of her form, but it's in a garden behind lilies. So you can just picture, and I've actually seen a drawing made up in a book I've got at home of that bride, and there she is, and of course around her bodice work are lilies. So one can see the form of her shape, particularly the breast, but it's hidden behind lilies. Now to me that's extremely beautiful. It's the difference between a man who is talking uh, and talking very discreetly about the beauty of his bride and how the bridesmaids would talk who see her there in all her naked beauty and can quite openly talk about that. And now that's only one of several cases in the, in the song where you have a ver- the way the, the groom speaks has got a certain discrepancy uh, uh, dis- um, discreetness about it so he speaks discreetly of something which the bridesmaids can talk quite openly because it's two different viewpoints one is quite wholesome and uh, therefore he speaks about it uh, discreetly now that to me is beauty and uh, beautiful and highlights as I said that rather than being an inappropriate book it's a very appropriate book and can teach us a lot of lessons in how we should talk too uh, and that uh, crudeness of the Australian perhaps could be toned down like the Jews and we could see that uh, we should use terms like they use them very discreetly ok that's taken us all that time just to cover the appropriateness of the book um, we're going to have to rush through the others but the relevance of the book itself well there are some subjects in here which are very very beautiful and it deals so much with ecclesial life and with our dealings with each other um, we take chapter 1 uh, and verse verse um, 9 for instance where it talks of the separation of the bride here's a few quotes I've got on separation um, in, the groom is talking about his bride and what does he say he says I've compared thee and you're like a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariot that word company there is actually singular and it's the feminine word it should be a mare a mare in Pharaoh's chariot so he says, I, well, I see you as a mare in Pharaoh's chariot. What's the point? Well, out there is Egypt. And out there is all the stallions of Egypt. But this, bride, this groom sees his bride as a beautiful mare in the midst of that. But we ask ourselves the question, does Christ see us that way? Can he distinguish between us and the wild stallions out there? 
You see, it speaks of separateness, it speaks of beauty, it speaks of the things that God wants to see in us as different to that that was seen in the horses of Pharaoh's chariot. So there's a, there's a, a beautiful illustration of separateness there. Chapter 2 and verse 3. Again, this is the time it's the, the bride talking about the groom. But she says, As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among his sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. So she saw her groom as different too. And we've got to see Christ as being that special person. You know, that comes out so beautifully in this book. She, she continually talks about the beauty of her beloved. And we've got to get that picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's no ordinary tree. And although there be some large, tall trees out there, and beautiful trees, but here's a beautiful tree representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. So she sees in him too something that is different, just as he sees something different in her. There's many others that we could turn up. I've got the other one here, uh, again speaking of the groom speaking, in chapter 6 and verse 8, where he talks about the bride. And um, he says this in chapter 6 verse 8, there are three score queens and four score, four score concubines and virgins without number but my dove, that's his reference to his bride, to his girl my dove, my undefiled is one not the but is not there, one so he says she's different altogether she's, she's different to those now what that's really saying is many are called and few are chosen you see all of these are, are representative of the ecclesia queens concubines and virgins are terms relating to the ecclesia but even within the ecclesia there's one that's the bride so we're being told that even within the ecclesia that there are only few relatively speaking who are reflecting the qualities that um, that he wants to see we're going to see that those numbers for instance, are important there because uh, there's two times 70 there's 140 and 70 is the number of the Gentiles and the Gentiles were divided up into two classes the the, um, the uh, uh, Japhites and the Hamites you know, Shem, Ham and Japheth are the three divisions of mankind one of them being Jew which is Shem the other two being Gentile Ham and Japheth and uh, so she's depicted there as the, the ecclesia is taken up out of both uh, Japheth and Shem but out of all those there's one that he has his eye on that's the bride the real true bride the fidelity of the bride in other words, the lesson is that the fidelity that we should have towards the Lord Jesus Christ is another thing that is emphasised time and time again here in a very practical way. Um, look at chapter 2 and verse, uh, verse 16 as an example of that. This is the bride speaking of her beloved. My beloved is mine and I am his. A very simple statement, but we're for made for each other. And she goes on and says, He feeds the lilies. That word among is not there. He feeds the lilies. Now remember he spoke of her as a lily. We get our sustenance from Christ. We don't get it from anywhere else. We get it from the word. We get it from Christ, from our beloved. And he's the one that feeds us. And so she appreciates that. But she speaks of her fidelity. She said, look, he's only got one girl in mind. I've only got one man in mind. And we must be aware of that, of course, that our eye is not turned to others but that the, uh, our eyes upon our beloved upon the Lord Jesus Christ chapter 4 verse 12 will be another example of the fidelity of the bride you know, these sort of terms are just so absolutely beautiful when you look at them spiritually the groom, the boy talking about his girl and he says 
a garden enclosed the word as you notice in Imagine means to be barred it's got a fence around it nobody can get in there a garden barred or, or, or stopped up is my sister my spouse a spring shut up a fountain seal in other words he says she's just for me and she's got no interest in anybody else she's absolutely faithful to me so beautiful terminology that he can use of his bride and again as we said we asked the question could those things be said of us or is it true that unfortunately that fence around us is sometimes the gate is open and others come in and we do show to God that our attraction is not only for Christ but we've got others heroes in our life as well but this one only had one hero and she was totally shut up for him she was in a real sense of the word a virgin and that's why the word is used in chapter 5 then in that chapter we read tonight and um, verse 10 um, in speaking the bride speaking now of her husband my beloved is white and red and he's the chiefest among 10,000 the word literally uh, it's translated in the Septuagint as captain and of course links with the New Testament uh, in Hebrews 2 verse 10 he is the captain of our salvation so she sees Christ as her only one you know it's beautiful when you see a girl talking about a boy and she's got eyes for no other and that's what she's doing here she has no eyes for no other man but this one he's her hero now that should be our view of the Lord Jesus Christ he is our hero in every sense of the word and in that same, uh, same chapter in verse 16 um, again beautiful terms his mouth is most sweet yea he is altogether lovely this is, my, this is a bride speaking of her future husband this is my beloved and this is my friend you know, I find a beautiful comforting phrase you know, to be able to refer to your partner as not just your husband or wife but your friend as well and there's quite a difference between saying I'm married and I've got a friend that I'm married to um, and so she's able to say he's not just my beloved but he's also my friend and she talks about his mouth being sweet and that he's absolutely lovely in fact the Jerusalem Bible we'll pick these up later if you don't catch them now because I'm going fairly fast we'll give them when we come to the chapter but um, I've got here where it says his mouth is most sweet the New World Translation which is um, of course the JW but I use it a bit more now they don't use it so much um, they, the New World gives that phrase his mouth is most sweet yea is altogether lovely it says this his conversation is sweetness itself everything about him is delightful that's a beautiful phrase isn't it his conversation is sweetness itself talking of, about Christ and everything about him is delightful that's how she saw him and that's how of course we should see Christ you know it's the answer why it says in our readings for yesterday um, that um, he spake unto the people with a parable and without a parable spake he not unto them Christ never uttered a word unless it was a parable because a parable means something with a spiritual application and Christ never said anything that couldn't be spiritually understood so he spoke, we talk about parables and non-parables but that verse tells us he always spoke parabolically because his words were sweetness itself you could, no matter what you, Christ said you could extract it out as far as you liked and it had a spiritual application, it was spiritually important now the bride here, again just picking up this other point that we, two points that we did say made it relevant um, and again it's by no means exhausting the principles we get but helpful the fact that there's a, in the book a beautiful co-relationship between the bridesmaids and the bride they're one and the same thing in the book the bride is us singular, singularly 
the bridesmaids are us, sorry, the bride is us collectively as an ecclesia, the bridesmaids are us individually, as individuals. So they completely identify each other all the time. So that she can say, I love my husband, and the bridesmaids say, we do too. Uh, now maybe in today's terminology a bride would be a bit suspicious about a bridesmaid saying well we love him as much as what you do and when he says she says well I think he's like this and they say yes so do we but you see it's one and the same thing but it's as a collective body and as individuals now that therefore gives us a clue and when we start to see these two talking you've got of course the the um, the ecclesia talking together now chapter 1 and verse 6 and this is a good illustration of why you should colour in your colour code your Bible too because in verse 6 of chapter 1 there's a conversation between 5 and 6 there's a conversation between the brides and the bridesmaids and if you had it coloured you'd pick that up the bride says in verse 5 I am black the bridesmaids answer back and they say no you're comely and so the bride then turns around and says no I'm like the black um, sorry but comely O ye daughters of Jerusalem the bride says I'm like the tents of Kedah the black tents of Kedah and the bridesmaids answer back and say no you're not you're like the beautiful curtains of Solomon and then the bride says look not upon me because I am black because the son looked upon me and my mother's children were angry against me and so forth but you see in that little interplay in verse 5 you've got the ecclesia talking together and when a brother or sister comes to us and says look I feel terrible you know I I am not the class of person that the Lord Jesus Christ should have called what do we do? do we lift the person up or do we send you right he made a wrong choice with you we don't, we take that person we say why and we talk about it and, and we start to highlight that person's person's qualities they may not see them but we need to highlight those qualities and they come back again and say no you've got it wrong really my life is a mess you say but look at the, the positive qualities of your life and so you bring out the beauty now that's the interplay between brother and sisters in the ecclesia of God and it's so vitally important to keep us going now, every time I talk about those sort of principles I'm reminded of my father some of you would remember him but um, had a, a wonderful attitude to the things of the truth and yet when I was younger when I was a teenager or whatever um, I used to see it as a weakness on his part that he never seemed to take up issues and people used to kick him about a bit like a football and he never seemed to retaliate and I used to say to him yeah, why don't you get stuck into it and so often dad used to say to me particularly on ecclesial things he used to say look if I have an argument with a brother and a brother says something to me that's hurtful or done something wrong to me so the first thing I do is I sit down and I think about all the good qualities of that brother and he said and before very long I realise that he's got qualities I don't even show he does things in the truth I don't even do so what right have I got to come back and get upset you know it's a beautiful quality as I said I used to see it as a weakness and say oh it's just dad getting out of it but it's a beautiful quality and it's being able to see beauty in others now the highlight of that I suppose comes together in, in 1 Corinthians 11 when we come together Sunday morning and we're focalised there in the most important meeting of our week that Paul ends up by saying when you come together wherefore when you come together in other words the real reason you're there and what it's all about is wherefore when you come together tarry one for another in other words we should be sitting there thinking not of ourselves but thinking of others and thinking of our brethren and sisters and that comes out so very very powerfully in this book that there's this, this conversation that goes on got other references there we won't go into those but, but because of time but time and time again that happens where the bridesmaids are able to lift up the bride and that's our duty 
That's our duty in the ecclesia, is to lift up and buoy up the ecclesia. An ecclesia will soon go downhill if you go around grumbling about it. And if you complain about all the brethren and sisters and say, well, this one shouldn't be doing that and he shouldn't be doing that and why do they do this? That ecclesia will start to, to crumble. But you start to build each other up and the ecclesia will be strong and virile. And Song of Solomon, above all other books, uh, brings that out very, very beautifully. And, of course, the companionship then, which was the fourth point, again, is emphasised in that point. Perhaps we can just look at the last quote I've got there. Chapter 6 and verse 1. Um, here's the companionship that's seen between true brethren and sisters here's a bride who's lost her beloved she can't find him and the bridesmaids answer in verse 1 and they say whither is thy beloved gone O thou fairest amongst women whither is thy beloved turned aside that we may seek him with thee what a statement it's like us when we come together like this and what we're doing is helping each other find God and find Christ and uh, that's what the bridesmaids are saying to the bride. You've lost him, we'll help you find him. And there are times in our life when literally we feel we've perhaps lost hold of things in the truth. And how comforting it is when we, brethren and sisters, come and build us up and say, you've lost him, I'll help you find him. Let's come around and we'll do the readings together. Come around and we'll do a study on the word. And all of a sudden we've found him again. And the bridesmaids have been responsible for that. So some very, very practical uh, lessons which make this book very relevant. The theme of the book, of course, is love. There's no doubt about that. We've called it the, we're on to our third point, uh, the theme of the book is love. We've time, termed it the superlative book because that's really what Song of Songs mean. See, the opening phrase is the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And by the term Song of Solomon's, Song of Songs rather, it's doing it superlative. They have all other songs. Now, we won't turn this up, but you can mark it down but in the first of kings chapter 4 and verse 32 we're told that Solomon wrote a thousand and five songs but what this tells us is this is the song of songs in other words it's better than all those one thousand and five why is that well it deals principally with the subject of love and that's that spiritual principle that as we said is found in the New Testament as for the outline of the book well, we hope you've got uh, the notes that we put out if you haven't seen me afterwards and we'll run off some more copies uh, and from next week God willing next class we'll start to, to mark in there alongside those oh, you've probably already started to do that but in that we've given a, an outline in the beginning of the breakdown of all of the chapters and at the back we've given you the voices of each of the songs and we suggest that you colour it in code it for yourself so that you know who's speaking the words there in that of course give you the area to colour in between for instance in chapter 1 verses 1 to 2 you colour in uh, um, sorry you colour the whole of chapter uh, verses 2 to 3 as the bridesmaids where can we pick it up uh, verse 1 to 4 you see you'd need to colour in draw me in one colour then you'd have to put we will run after thee in a different colour then you colour in from the king through to wherever the word chambers occurs in that verse, a different colour, the bride's colour again, and then back to the virgins you colour in from we will be glad through to the word thee, I think it's the last word in the verse so we've given you the areas to colour in, I might just explain that, yeah that may be slightly different to colouring in if you've gone by purse's notes or by um Oh, what's his name, um, the other one that's done a set of notes, um, Paul Cresswell it may be slightly different but I assure you right now that the differences are so minor it doesn't make a difference to the book 
but what I've tried to do is to be firstly very literal about the story it is the story of a young boy courting his girl and how they work towards the wedding day they get married and they enter into the marriage and in keeping that in mind then I've tried to make it flow as a story what some of the other notes perhaps Purse's notes and so forth tend to do is if you've been through them it's a little bit confusing sometimes because they, they sort of keep going backwards and forwards between the type like for instance it might mention about the groom coming in the first song well that's only her desire that he come but they might pick it up and say well we're all looking for Christ coming and one day he'll come and it gets a bit confusing I've tried to make it into the story form and tried to use as a background the customs that we've done quite a study on of the Jews and the, the way in which they go about a marriage now because of that for instance when you come into the early section here uh, verse 8 of chapter 1 I don't know whether you've got your Bibles marked from Purser's notes or um, uh, Paul's but I think he's just got angel they've got angels there uh, as speaking in verse 8 but when you're looking at it as a story that doesn't fit in I mean nowhere literally in a young couple coming together are there angels involved in that wedding service that's the spiritual aspect so I've tried to keep it natural first then draw out yes it's the angels but in the spiritual type they're the, they're the um, uh, the groomsman and the best man they're the male form of the wedding party now in fact in the Hebrew it is in masculine it is in the masculine form so we know it's male it's a part of the bridal party now the bridal, the masculine part of the bridal party that's not the groom are the best man and the groomsman so we've as I said taken it literally and that's the titles that we've given um, so we've tried to follow very very closely the, um, the literal Hebrew and picked up the masculine feminine as we've gone through which sometimes I've found in the other notes they don't necessarily do that so you might find some small differences there in your colour coding but very small indeed and doesn't alter the overall view of the book you might want well, to talk this might be interested in that if you are ask the, um, let me know and I'll get some run off that was brought back by a brother that went to Israel who was knew that I loved the Song of Solomon and that's the Song of Solomon in Hebrew made into the rose made in the shape of the rose because the rose of Sharon is mentioned although it's not a rose but they've taken that and there's a girl apparently in somewhere in Israel who did it for them while they are there they just said what book do you want they said well what about Song of Solomon and she does the book and draws it into a picture that suits the book so that's all made up of Jewish writing um, I, that I'm not really sure I'm, I had a look through and I think it's got to be more than that Danny I think it's got to be more than that whether it's the whole of the book or the first chapter or part of the book I don't know but it's Song of Solomon anyway in Hebrew um, if you had a look at it close um, you can see the Hebrew um, and uh, it's just made into a shape of a, of a rose so, um, but it would have made and I should have really put it as a cover for that set of notes but I'd forgotten I had it if you want a copy of that um, uh, you can get it from me I'll get some copies done off I think it would uh, be nice to be at the front of your, your notes ok so the theme of the book as we said and it is important to get at least the speakers right in the book by colour coding so that um, you can then find out who's speaking at any given time that will help us as we follow through one of the fundamental quotes that we'd need to put at the top of Song of Solomon we'll pick this up next time is of course Revelation 19.19 19. blessed are they who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb because that's what the book is all about it's about us being called uh, to be his bride and to be at the marriage supper 
marriage and supper we should say to be technically correct now chronological order um, was the next point we had the book is yeah I'm getting a signal what is it quarter past we'll finish at half past is that normal 8 to 9.30 you're saying quarter past we want to keep going or we want to pick this up next time my wife's giving me signals like that do you want to go for a little bit longer can I get a, make it perhaps another um, uh, five minutes uh, just to pick up um, this next couple of points because chronological order is important in the book it's in order as I said in this sense and that's what we've tried to do if in the back of this book you'll notice the titles for the for the for the different songs parallel each other because it's a double aspect a Jewish bride and a Gentile bride um, song 1 parallels song uh, 7 song 2 song 8 and so forth and the titles therefore follow this way that the first song in the, each section that's song 1 and song 7 is the chosen bride it highlights the bride and why the, why the groom has chosen her in the second song in each section it's their expressions of love for each other and those songs are really devoted to just the bride talking about the, the groom and the groom talking about the bride and they express their, their love for each other song through 3 takes us into the bride now preparing for the wedding day it's coming and she's preparing for the wedding day song 4 and it's, uh, it's parallel which is um, in song 10 the groom now arrives he suddenly comes he's there with her and she says and I grab him and I won't let him go and then the wedding and supper take place in song 5 there's no real reference to the wedding she finds him the next thing she's his wife there's no time spent on the marriage it's on the wedding itself it's where uh, Psalm 45 is beautiful to fit in there because that deals with the wedding day but it's really just them coming together and um, then uh, the supper is highlighted because that's when go, the bride goes up to Jerusalem and all nations are called upon to be part of the wedding service and then finally the marriage and by marriage we don't mean the wedding there's a dis distinction between the two wedding is the day you marry marriage is what you enter into and so the last song deals with the marriage as they stand up there on the heights of Israel looking down at the land and the groom is talking to the bride and saying well that's our work ahead of us that's what we've got to do so we've followed that pattern as we've gone through and picked it up as I said in order now chronologically it follows too and this is where we'll finish our studies tonight chronologically it starts for instance in the first song you see the emphasis upon things like this that uh, in the first song which goes from verse 1 to verse 8 which is dealing with the Jewish bride the emphasis is upon things like tents of Kedah where do we first read about them? back in the time of Ishmael back into the time of the calling of the fathers Abraham, Isaac and Jacob we're going right back to the beginning of Israel's history and that's emphasised by the fact that there's an emphasis now upon feeding of sheep and shepherds and our mind must go right back to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob for those sojourners in the land not therefore surprising when you come to song 2 if it's Israel's history it begins by depicting her as a mare in Pharaoh's chariot so you've got Israel coming out of captivity and you've got some allusions in that song to them travelling through the wilderness in the next song there's an emphasis upon the fact that they're established in the land and it talks of all the fruits of the land and how that they went into a place which the, the groom calls my banqueting house 
and you can see Israel now in the land and it's firmly established there and particularly the area of the kings and the, the, the kingdom under David and Solomon and words come out of that period, time period in their history and then it goes on further and you've got them coming out of captivity until you come to that um, song that we read tonight and as I said I think this is really the turning point of the whole song in song 7 you've got now the time period when Christ comes and how does Christ find his bride? Well, she's asleep in verse 2. Israel were asleep. And that's taken out of the Old Testament. Several references in the Old Testament to the fact that Israel will be asleep when Christ came. So they were asleep. But there's a heart which is awake. So in all of Israel, the majority who weren't waiting for him, there was a little group who were. There was your Simeons and um, uh, Anna. Uh, Han- Anna, isn't it? Yes, Anna. Uh, there was um, Elizabeth and um, uh, and Zacharias. There were there was a heart beating in Israel while the rest of them were asleep. There was a little heart beating, waiting for him. But when that heart finally realised who he was, in the terms of this, when they went to the door, because he knocked on the door, and he not only knocked on the door, it says he put his hand through the door and tried to open it from the inside. He really wanted Israel to know who he was, and Christ went out of his way to prove himself to Israel. And they wouldn't listen. And it says, then this little heart, suddenly the bride gets up, makes the bride get up, they go to the door and he's gone. And that's the history of the first, that's, that's the gospel record. It's the disciples who, of all things, on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, said when they suddenly realised who he was, he was taken from them. And that was their position. By the time that little small group really understood who he was, he was on the, on the hill overlooking Jerusalem, being taken away from them. And so then the call went out to the Gentiles. And so this chapter opens up and the bridesmaids come along and say, you've lost your, your uh, beloved. We'll help you look for him. And it's the call of the Gentiles. And the Gentiles now come into the picture. Now again, interestingly enough, the chronologically, chronologically it follows. So the call goes out to the Gentiles and the truth is revived in the first century. The longest song in the book goes from chapter 5 verse 2 through to 6 verse 10, that seventh song. But then the truth almost disappeared. We know that from history. And brethren like Brother, um, his name, uh, um, Ian Leask, spend their life trying to search out where the truth was in a period. It just seemed to disappear. Next song, three verses. Three verses. And it says, I went down to the Garden of Nuts, this is the bride, I went down to the Nuts, Garden of Nuts to see whether anything was there. There was virtually nothing left. And yet the truth suddenly revives and we're back to a long song we're back into the seventh song and in that seventh song again there is the, the, um, the very clear indications it's the bride preparing and the time particularly of the pioneers and the revival of the truth and then of course the groom comes and the kingdom begins and so forth so chronologically it beautifully follows through and you can just pick out these little words and keys right through Israel's history to Christ's coming then it changes and the emphasis becomes Gentile and the Gentiles now come into the hope of Israel so chronologically it follows very beautifully as well as following the order of a Jewish wedding now we'll leave it there then Um, before we start the first song I think we can very quickly next time just um, uh, have a look at uh, Solomon or perhaps I'll just mention in conclusion Solomon is like unlike that book Solomon is totally appropriate as the author because he married a Gentile bride I suppose but in his multitudinous brides he represents Christ who has a multitudinous bride simple as that 
There was no other king could have fitted that as well as what he did with a thousand wives and concubines who typified the multitudinous Christ from all nations. And so he's very, very fitting for the author of the book. So next time, as I said, we'll just very quickly go through and show you the double application, the Jewish and Gentile aspect of the book, and then uh, link it with a couple of other writings of of Solomon's, and then we can get into uh, looking at the first song. So I hope, anyway, brethren and sisters, I know that's been a bit rushed, but I hope it's given you a feel for the book, uh, taken it out of if it's been in your mind as a category of a book that perhaps is a bit difficult to understand. It's not. It's a very, very, very easy book to understand. If you felt terminology is a bit inappropriate, we hope we've covered that. It's a book well worth looking at, and I'm sure that we're going to thoroughly enjoy it as we, we have a look at it and we see, above anything else, I think, the practicalness of the book it's going to talk about our ecclesial life particularly what you do in ecclesias <coughs> and uh, how you deal with situations as well so it's a very very beautiful book and as I said I for one I'm very glad that we're, uh, we're having a look at it